everybody. Welcome to the extras. My name's James. And I'm Sam. And welcome back to another week. Sam, I'm back. Yeah, you look, we, we got good feedback. We, we got a lot of love for James Chen last week. Here he is back again. I'm back. Sitting by in, popular demand. <laughs> sitting in Mike's chair again this week. It's great to have you with us. We've moved locations as well. The rain is pelting down, down outside and so yes, yes. my little tin box of an office uh, was just too, uh, I don't know, too traumatic. And so we moved. It's a bit of echoey here, so sorry if there's a little bit of... Uh, the difference in sound, but we have moved for the rain's sake. We are here in a dungeon where some of the MTSs hang out. So yeah. uh, here we are, and hopefully this episode will be helpful for you. You know, Sam, we've had a lot of questions that have come through this week again. Mm-hmm. But if uh, you know our listeners weren't here on Sunday, why don't you run us through what we were looking at in Romans chapter 3, 21 to 26? Yeah, the big weekend on Sunday, um, in every sense. Uh, we had a big combined service in the morning um, and a big day, but... Also, big passage, Romans 3. This is the big but now, the, the moment we've been waiting for <laughs> over all these weeks where out of the darkness of the background of judgment came the, the glorious light of the gospel that um, now God's righteousness has come um, through faith in Jesus Christ apart from the law. And uh, we looked at some of the big words, some of the big theological words around what had happened. We looked at justification. We looked at propitiation, uh, we looked at the demonstration of God's with and in Shun. Yes, that's all, right. All redemption. The redemption through right. his blood, yeah. Um, so uh, important big things that happened at the cross of Christ. Yes. Um, and yes, yes. Uh, it, it was a it was a great, great day on Sunday. Uh, worth a listen if you've uh, if you want to jump on our website and listen to the talk if you missed it. Yeah, that's right. And if you've missed any of the talks, we want to highly encourage you to First of all, be in Romans yourself, but also you can head on over to the St. Paul's Anglican website. Yep. And yeah, just have a listen. Mm. Now we've got some questions today, mate. Yes, that's right. We have a number of questions. So let's just kick it off then. Okay. First question here, Sam, is uh, look, if righteousness is given through faith, um, in other words, trust and belief in Jesus, mm-hmm. how do I know if I'm saved if there are times when I seriously don't trust God? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, that, that's a question looking for assurance. And that's the great thing about the, the Christian gospel is that it is full of assurance that you can be confident, um, not because of your own uh, actions or your own abilities, but because of what Christ has done for you. So um, it, it, we use the illustration of a chairlift um, mm. on, uh, on Sunday that uh, it's the chairlift that gets you up to the top of the hill. All you're doing is sitting in it. And uh, even if you're sitting on it freaking out, worried, um, the chairlift will safely deliver you to the top of the hill, and uh, even if you're having a hard time hanging on, or, or you know, a hard time yes, sitting on it, yes, yes. it's doing the work for you. And so, um, that that that's the important thing to say up front. The, the second thing to say is, if, if if you're feeling like there are times where you're struggling to trust God, I'd want to say, look, you're in good company. Um, <laughs> In that, and we're going to see that this coming Sunday, we are going to explore what did Abraham discover in in light of faith. So I don't want to spoil everything that's coming this Sunday, um, but to say that Abraham had all kinds of moments where he didn't trust God. Um, and yet, at the moment where God made a promise to him to say, I will bless you, and I'll hear it, here's the way I'll bless you, Abraham, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, after that, he did all sorts of things that demonstrated a lack of trust in God. Mm, he, mm. he passed off Sarah as his sister. He left the promised land when there was a famine. He did yeah, yeah. all sorts of things that were just foolish and wrong and showed he didn't trust God. And yet, he had, he had God's righteousness reckoned to him, credited to him, 
um, at that point where he trusted the promise of God. Mm-hmm. And so that that is the... Um, and so depending, I mean, it's hard to know, not, not knowing who's asking the question here, but um, if there are points, if there's a point where you've trusted that, yes, Jesus is the way to be saved, mm. that, that credits you with righteousness. Mm. Um, then if you go to your life and you're like, wow, in this area I'm struggling to trust God, yeah, it's hard. Um, and yet there, so, but take, so take confidence that you, you are righteous if you trusted God's promise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems like a trusting God, it's, it's something that, you know, you've done, you, you do, and there may be moments when you lapse, but maybe the orientation of your life, the, That's a the orientation of, of faith, that even though there are lapses, um, you would still say that you have trust in, mm. in God. Yeah. And that is, and it's genuine. God's work through Jesus that saves you. And uh, and if you've trusted that, then mm. then you're okay. Mm. And maybe there's something else, Sam, from uh, last week's passage. That look, Romans three, uh, verse uh, eleven. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Yep. There's a sense in which, in and of ourselves, we don't seek God. But maybe if you know you're someone who genuinely cares about whether you have faith. You're someone who genuinely wants to seek God from God's word. That could only be because there's something different inside you. It, it could be a sign, actually, the fact that you care about this, yeah. that you really do have faith. As, as weak as it may be, you have real faith. That, that's right. And I mean, so thanks, James. That's really helpful in terms of Romans 3, 10 and 11 say that you're not actually seeking God. And so if you're asking this question saying, I really want to um, sort out my faith, you know my struggles with faith that's actually a sign that god's already working in you it's a sign of life um mm. and and we've got to keep remembering that that the faith that we have ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says um that even the faith doesn't come from us um it's we're saved by grace um through faith and this not from yourselves it's the mm. gift of god not by works, so that no one can boast so even the faith small and weak as it might feel to you at times if, if you trust the promise of Jesus mm. um, it, it, that's a gift from God given to you the mm. whole thing's a gift mm. and I guess there's another dimension to it as well because a lot of things we've been thinking about could also be personal uh, introspective reflection which is good and there's a place for that yep. but maybe there's an external thing as yeah. well Sam that we could look at to see if our faith is genuine yeah I think it's uh, very practically speaking if, if you um, if you're struggling with these kind of issues, it's always good to ask someone else, someone who knows you, maybe a growth group leader, a friend, um, trusted Christian friend. Uh, you could say to them, look, oh, I'm struggling. What, what do you see in my life? Do you, do you see... Um, James chapter 2 talks about this. Um, it says that there is a way to see, um, see faith, and it's through good works. Um, because none of us do good works by nature, says Romans 3. And so if there's good works going on, um, then they're probably coming because they're, they're, they're accompanying, accompanying mm. saving faith. Mm. Um, mm. And so, yeah, it says you, you can see faith by our works. Mm. And I guess we want to be careful there because we're, we're probably our worst uh, self-evaluators of our own yeah. works. Yes, and that's we, right. And we don't want to start thinking that we're right with God because of our works. No, but, yeah. but at the same time, you... you Saving faith will be accompanied by mm. good works, and I think it is good to have someone that you're in a good, accountable relationship with, and you can say to them, "Hey, what are you noticing in my life?" Mm. Um, mm. And have someone to encourage you. Say, "Hey, I've noticed you, the way you've changed in this area, and I'm, I praise God for it." Yeah. Wow. Okay. All right. So we've got a few things there. Thank you, Sam, for that. That's a multi-dimensional. Yeah, lots, lots going on in there. <laughs> I hope there was something clear, clear that you can hang on to. There. Yeah. There you go. There you yeah. Go. All right. So next question. So. As someone who was you know, really trying to listen and, and work out what was going on in this passage in, on Sunday. In verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans, Paul says that God's righteousness is now revealed. Yep. 
then in verses 25 and 26, he says that the propitiating sacrifice of Jesus demonstrates God's righteousness. Now, here's the question, Sam. Isn't revealing or revelation and, and demonstration, aren't, aren't they just the same thing? What's going on here? Yep. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's right. Um, the way that God reveals his righteousness um, uh, is in the same instance as he demonstrates it. And, and he reveals it in this way, apart from the law, says verse 21, um, and and it comes through faith in Jesus, and then he goes on to sort of lay out for us what Jesus has done that we then put faith in. Um, so yes, and, and I think that shows you that the righteousness of God is this big category, um, mm-hmm. which is what I was trying to lay out on on Sunday for us. How much is going on in the in the righteousness of God? It is at one level sort of the the, the righteousness of Christ that is in, that is credited, imputed, given to your account that that you're kind of clothed with. But it's also the we talked about this on Sunday. It's also the um, the fairness and the justice of God that God will only ever do what is right and just. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to credit a sinner with righteousness, that that would be unjust if he didn't justly punish mm-hmm. sin. And so, that's mm-hmm. part of his righteousness as well that he he condemns sin in sinful man in three twenty five um, by punishing. Um, punishing Jesus yeah and I guess that's sort of what we see in verse 26 right this idea of being just and the justifier that's right there's... God is just in his character his justifier in crediting righteousness that's right so there's, there's lots of things going on and the righteousness of God is a big um, and I think from memory back in my first talk way back when we did an overview of um, Romans um, I laid out for us three things that are going on in the righteousness of God um, mm. of which yeah those are two of them one yeah. is a crediting of righteousness but there's also a a justice of God going on. Um, the third one is is God's own moral and ethical um, rightness in and of Himself. Um, yes. That He is the kind of standard of all that is just and good and right. Yeah. yeah. So much in these six verses, right? So much. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So next question, and I think this is from someone who uh, was wrestling last week in growth group. So taking a look at Romans three verses one to twenty. Okay. Um, so we're back in the passage. Yeah, previously. that's right. Yep, that's okay. right. Yep. So here's the question. So in Romans three. Paul quotes the Psalms, yep. uh, and he actually quotes uh, from uh, uh, Psalm 14, but Psalm 14 seems to be very similar to Psalm 53. In, f- in fact, they're almost identical. Yeah. So here's the question, Sam. Why are there two almost the same Psalms in the Bible? Doesn't it seem a bit hmm. uh, moot and, and, and unnecessary to, yep. to just repeat Psalms? Yeah. I mean, go and have a read of Psalm 14 and 53, and yes, you'll find they are almost not quite, but almost word for word the same psalm. What's different? Uh, the biggest difference is um, that in Psalm 14, when God is addressed, he's addressed as Yahweh, the, the Lord, um, whereas in Psalm 53, he's not. He's just addressed as God, Elohim, um, is, the, is the word behind that. Um, and so in one, um, the, David uses the, the, the name of God, and in the other, he doesn't. Uh, that, that's the biggest difference between the two. But structurally and ideas-wise, they're more or less the same otherwise. Could you hypothesize maybe a reason <laughs> well, as to why you got there are that? a couple of reasons that people suggest. One is that the Bible writers were just a bit stupid. And it's sort of like, um, you know, it's like it's like when you go on a, you know, a meeting or something like that and you drop your notes everywhere yeah, and then you yeah. just put them back together and something got mixed up and ends up in the wrong spot. So David just forgot and he wrote it. Yes. And then, you know, we, we can just forget and just say, well, that, that obviously wasn't meant to be in there twice. Yeah, um, yeah. And there is some sort of um, scholars who, who would um, argue that way. 
um, and they would argue that therefore the Bible's not that trustworthy. Um, it's clearly been sort of there's mistakes and duplicates, and therefore we're free to cut and choose bits and pieces. Okay, so that's one. Yeah, I don't think we want to go down that pathway. Um, I think a better way to think about it is that the, the Psalms are actually organised into that um, they are have been ordered into a collection and have, and therefore the, the order that we receive them in there was some intentionality in that via the because um, you remember the Psalms were the songbook of Israel they mm. were used for worship um, and they're organized there's one big collection 150 Psalms but within that 150 there are actually five books um, yeah, right. which not a lot of people notice but if you if you're reading along and you sort of get to a point sometimes you'll see oh book two oh book three and um, they're broken up and each book now there are movements if you like think of think of like a symphony right mm. um, it's it's all one big long thing it's like um, but it has a, it has a movement you know and then it's sort of part one part two part three part four and, and there will be traces of, of continuity between the whole symphony but the various movements will each have their different mood and their own mm. feel and tone and does, does that make sense yeah 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 um, and, and the psalms are a little bit like that now without having hours to talk to you about sort of um, yeah how the book of psalms works um, there's there is a bit of a difference between um, book two in particular which is where psalm 53 um, if exists is, is is sort of recognizing in book two that that the, that the kingdom of Israel is not as it should be, um, and there's uh, Psalm fifty one for instance just just two psalms before mm. um, David's confessing his sin here he is the king of Israel saved by God shown the mercy of God and he's just taken Bathsheba someone else's wife he's slept with her she's got pregnant and then he's murdered the the woman's husband Uriah. And then he's been found out, and then he's uh, come to God in confession in Psalm 51, mm. and he's fully aware of the the, the reality of his sin, um, and he, he he can see that things are not as they are. And so there's this sort of longing. Now that Psalm 51 is just one part of yeah, the, yeah. The, the, this movement, uh, but there's this longing for the future, and uh, that, that that things would be better in the future Mm. Um, and it's interesting in that little section between 51 and I think 54 Mm. um, the four psalms there David doesn't use the name of God Psalm 55 again I think he he picks up using God's name again Um, and he seems to be uh, aware of his sin and and, and nervous even in particularly in 51 of of, um, God rejecting him like um, like God did Saul um, Mm. the king before Mm. him and yet then he, he remembers that the hope that he's got because uh, um, God saves and God is gracious and the promise of God. And, um, but it's looking forward in, in book two. Um, so it seems like that, that, that this psalm has been placed here again in, in, the, in the midst of all this sin going on, just a reminder that there's no one righteous, not even David. Yeah, um, yeah. And he needs, um, yeah, needs the righteousness of mm. God like we all do. So. That's really interesting, Sam. So there's a sense in which like the... the looking out for the name of God and seeing how that, that plays there could give us a hint as to why it's coming up again. Yeah, that, that, I think that would be one of the hints. That it's certainly the difference mm. um, between the two um, instances of these two psalms. Mm. Um, but it's also, remember, these were sung by the, the people of Israel, so there's a movement. So you want to look at what happens in the psalm before and the psalm yeah, after yeah, because right. it's a little bit like on, on Sunday when we sing song one, song two, song three, and song four and mm. song five. When the songs are done well, mm. um, that there should be some sense of you know that, that a gathering song at the start and mm. a kind of response song after the sermon, and then a kind of going out to 
serve song at the end. Now, it doesn't always work that well, and sometimes, <laughs> you know, some groups do that better than others, but the, the, when the songs are used well, that, that the, now the Psalms are the same, they, they, there's a movement to them, mm-hmm. and so there's a sort of, there's a darkness in, in this uh, second book, looking forward to what is to come you know, in, in the later books, and uh, yeah, to see the way that the Psalms are organised. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, that's really helpful, Sam. And I guess just in terms of Romans 3, the point is the same, that no one righteous, no one seeks God, and it's foolishness. That's um, right. Yeah, whether you're Jew or Gentile. Yeah. All right. Well, okay, so here's a really tricky question, Sam. Okay. So, uh, they've, they've been all pretty easy yeah, so far. <laughs> that's true. Everything's been easy so far. That's right. That's right. Yeah. All right, here we go. So at the cross, yep. and on Sunday, we're looking at how... Um, God's wrath has been propitiated through the sacrifice of atonement. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the question. Is it only God the Father's wrath that is propitiated? Or, or could we say that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are angry at sin as well? Uh, mm-hmm. is, is their sin, uh, excuse me, not their sin, is their wrath present and is their wrath propitiated at mm. the cross as well? So I think we're getting a bit here into yeah. what we call the Trinity, yep. which isn't a term that helps us explain it. It help, It's a shorthand for what mm-hmm. we believe about yeah. Father, Son, Spirit, being God, and yet distinct persons. So I guess, Sam, yep. can you help run us through... Uh, let's, let's start with, does the Bible speak about the wrath of Jesus and the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah, okay. Look, I want to say straight up, this is a great question. Um, and uh, I love that people are thinking so deeply about stuff, and that this just kind of... Um, despite the fact this is a tricky question, and uh, I'm going to say straight up front that there's probably more to say on this than I can, you know, give you at short notice. Um, but well, wow, what a great question! Um, uh, answering the first bit, are there instances where someone other than God the Father is angry? Um, yes, I think so. Um, uh, two, two Thessalonians one talks uh, in, in verse seven talks about the. Um, the coming wrath of Jesus, the, the, mm. the wrath of the Son. That's talking about the return of Jesus. Mm. Um, likewise, Revelation 6, uh, if you can remember back from when we studied that last year, um, Revelation 6.16 talks about the wrath of the Lamb, so which the Lamb being Jesus. Um, there's not an explicit reference to the Spirit being angry, and yet I wonder if you could impute something, or sorry, not impute, you could... Um, the word, uh, suggest something from mm-hmm. Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira they, they lie to the Holy Spirit and then Ananias he, well Ananias does it first and he lies down he falls down dead mm-hmm. and then uh, Peter calls his wife on it and says is, is this true and she, um, he says you've not lied to, to man but to the Holy Spirit who's mm-hmm. God and then she also dies and seems to be that, I mean, it's not explicit there that the Spirit was angry, but you, perhaps you could um, suggest something from that. Mm. So, there's a sin against the Spirit, which leads yeah. to a consequence yeah. in some way. And I think, now, why is that important? It, I think that's important because it is not the case, as some would suggest, that it is God the Father who is angry, while God the Son never got angry. He, he's just full of love and full of grace and full of compassion, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Mm-hmm. Um, and he isn't it good that we've got good guy Jesus on the team who can come and sort of calm the, the angry father down. Mm-hmm. Um, Placate his wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. As if, as if the father's the angry one and Jesus is the good one who's, mm-hmm. who never gets angry. No, I think that the Godhead in, in, in its Trinitarian unity is um, united in, in anger and um, judgment, justice, over sin. So mm. I think we can say that is certainly true. Um, and yet, 
in the way that the Trinity um, function in this um, atoning work that we've been talking about via via Romans chapter 3 is that it is uh, God the Father who pours out his wrath upon God the Son, um, which is then um, received by faith by those who who, who put their trust in it. So um, there seems to be an order there. But again... To remember that it's not a third party, it's not Jesus the third party coming in, it's actually God taking his own wrath upon himself, but it's God the Father mm. uh, punishing the wrath in God the Son. Mm. And so it is, there is a sense in which, and I think I talked about this in one of the, the live question times on Sunday, I can't quite remember which one, um, but when you get angry, you've really got two options. You can either put your wrath on someone else mm. or you can you can hold it in and absorb it in and of yourself and choose not to mm. make and at that point you pay mm. um, I think that's what God is doing he is paying for his own sin by absorbing it in himself you mean his own wrath his own wrth yes, in himself yes. no sorry, sorry. <laughs> he's absorbing his own wrath yes, yes. In, in himself mm. um, but but Trinitarian wise mm. that is happening as God the Father um, mm. pours out his wrath upon God the Son mm. but it is all one God united yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, if I could throw a verse in there. Go for it. Uh, Hebrews nine fourteen um, yeah. gives us a sense that actually Father, Son, and Spirit are were all involved in the work of the blood of Christ being put forward yeah. to bring us into yep. uh, this new state of now where we can live for God. Yes, so, that, that's and right. And they're all united together in this. Uh, absolutely, and, and yet they've. they've the way that it's often spoke about is they do take distinct roles yes. um, in it, that God the Father seems to be one whose wrath is, is poured mm-hmm. upon God the Son. Um, 2 Corinthians 5, which we're studying at Salt at the moment, um, uh, speaks of it um, in, in this regard. It talks about, in 5, uh, 18, talks about all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then has given the ministry of reconciliation to us um, and then 19, God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not mm-hmm. counting people's sins against them. So there, there seems to be this sense in which in the, in the restoring of the relationship from one of anger to one of um, sort of forgiveness and, and rightness, um, God reconciles mm. through Christ. Mm. So that there is a, the persons of the Trinity do take various roles in yes, this. Yes, yes. So now, just on... Uh, uh, on that, so for example, passages like two Thessalonians one and Revelation six, they do seem to be this this fact that now that Jesus is raised as as and as seated at the right hand of God and has given all authority in heaven and earth, he is the judge who will almost bring God's wrath yeah. um, and and enact it. I guess Sam. So this is just trying to get to the 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 question of well, is the wrath of Jesus propitiated? Then I guess. Uh, through the cross, what would you say to that? Yeah, um, well, I, I wouldn't break it up quite that um, mm, mm. Uh, distinctly. The wrath of God um, expressed through the Father, propitiated by the Son. Mm. Um, but what's going on then with the fact that Jesus then comes in wrath? Yeah, yeah. There's something that, that something that happens after Jesus' resurrection. Acts 17 points you to this. Mm. Um, when, when Paul is preaching um, to, to the Athenians, and, uh, and he talks about, um, in, in 1731, uh, he says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So one of the things that has happened now that Jesus has been raised is that he has finished his atoning work and his propitiating work, and he now 
has been installed as God's judge. Mm-hmm. And God is now waiting till that day that he has set when Jesus will judge. And, and Hebrews 9, again, you, you put it to verse 14, but to yes. 27 and 28, mm-hmm. talks about the return of Jesus the second time. He's coming not to bear sin, but at that point to either bring salvation or to bring justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so his second coming will not be as a, as a, as a propitiation. He's already done that work. Mm-hmm. His second coming will be as Lord, who saves those who've trusted him, or ex- executes the Father's judge, judgment mm-hmm. on those who haven't. Yeah. That's, so there's almost a sense in which um, if you are still under the wrath of God, Yes. Um, and you haven't been, you haven't embraced the blood of Jesus and and, and, and the forgiveness that is in Him. Mm-hmm. That wrath will be enacted um, through the Son, who is now the Judge that God has appointed. Yep. Yep. Yes. Now, all of this, I would put a big kind of caveat on all of this in that unpicking the the exact details of how the Trinity works is very difficult and also very, I wouldn't say dangerous, but but something to be approached carefully. Um, uh, the, the church fathers through the sort of third and fourth century had big arguments and, you know, councils around all this stuff um, and huge disagreements around it all. One of the things is that the scriptures don't tell us everything about the minutiae of the inner workings of the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what the scripture gives us is everything that we need for life and godliness. That's what um, Paul writes to Timothy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there is a sense in which we don't, we don't have all the answers about the inner working of the Trinity. One day we'll see God face to face and I reckon we'll have a whole lot of a better sense of, oh, that's how it works. Um, <laughs> but for now, we're trying to pull things together out of verses that aren't always directly kind of trying to answer the textbook on, you know, mm. h- how does the Trinity mm. function exactly? Mm. Um, or answer the questions that we're asking. Yeah, that's right. Um, but but what, what the scripture does point us to is the fact that God's wrath had, can be propitiated through mm. the sacrifice of Christ the mm. Son. And I guess what I'm getting from these answers um, that we've been working through here, Sam, mm. uh, is that God is united in His wrath, but God yes. is united in His work of redemption. That's God right. God is united in His love for us, yep. and Father, Son, and Spirit work together to bring about this uh, this gift now of God's righteousness so that we can be forgiven. That's a really helpful summary, James. Yep. Oh, all good. All yep. good. All right. Well, I guess... Uh, sorry, was there something you wanted to say? No, about? that's it. Let's guess. Well, I think we've got one more here. One more question. Last that's one. It. Yeah. All right, all right. So here we go. An easy one, right? Okay. So. Good, good, good. Yeah. It's been... It's been <laughs> walking the park so far. So it's a two-part question. Okay. First part is, so did Jesus go to hell when he died and received God's punishment? Mm-hmm. That's the first part. Second part is, we know that sins deserve death, but for us, it's an eternal death. How does Jesus fully pay the punishment if he's not eternally punished in hell? Yeah, yeah great questions. Um, well done, people. Yeah, these are good. Um, okay. Again, I, I, I put the same caveat on this, that we, we do get into stuff here that the Scripture doesn't speak explicitly about. Um, the, the first one is, um, did Jesus go to hell? Um, I mean, there's all sorts of questions around there about what is the nature of hell? Is it a place? What is it? Um, and did Jesus go there? Um, let's try and tackle that first. Um, the question is, is, is hell a place or an experience? I think it's both, but it's it's first and foremost an experience of the wrath of God mm. um, which though I think is, happens in a place when, when Jesus speaks about hell he talks about the place where the worm does not die and the mm. fire does not go out um, he gives the parable of uh, Lazarus and the, the rich man and, and there's this sort of spatial there's this great chasm place between the two places of heaven and hell and the, the fire so it certainly does seem to be a place element to it but 
that seems to be secondary to um, what is what I think is primary in that it is about the wrath of God. It is the it is the, the active punishment of God mm. um, poured out upon sinners. Mm. Um, so yeah. maybe if we're thinking about hell, it's not helpful to think about what we saw in The Simpsons or Futurama, like... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, you certainly think, you know, underneath the earth, um, just down at the, the core of the earth where it's really orange and hot, yeah, that's um, right, that's right. you know, and then up up in the clouds is heaven. It's not spatial in that regard. Yeah, um, right. Yeah. It, the, the scripture speaks of a new heaven and a new earth. Mm. Um, that That's its picture of glory and... and, and the good outcome for eternity mm. um, and then it speaks of hell of a place um, of torment and awful but it doesn't spatially locate those yeah, things right. for us okay. um, and so what scripture seems to be saying is that if nothing else um, Jesus took the wrath of God on himself as the lamb of God um, mm. he, he was the sacrifice the you know as we saw on the day of atonement the lamb is um, mm. is, is killed, its blood is poured out to, to take the wrath of God upon um, uh, upon it and, and that was what Jesus has done and so he has certainly experientially taken the full wrath of God um, where did his, you know, where did he go um, spatially during that time um, I'm not sure, one, one of the I guess some of the confusion in around some of this it comes from the Apostles' Creed, uh, which talks about he descended into hell. Or, mm. But but the the Greek word is just Gehenna, the, the place of the dead, yeah, which, right. which could mean it. It's most simple that he died um, and was buried. He was right. he's in a tomb. That yeah, he's in the right. place of the dead. Yes. Um, now, uh, so so there's some some trick trickiness there um, mm. but Gehenna in the Old Testament can also refer to hell as a, mm. as a place because that's you know where the worms are and the, the fires are burning and yeah sure yeah that, that's sort of so there's, there's some trickiness around the Apostles Creed yes um, scripturally um, there, there's not a lot there yeah. um, that, that we can that we can go yes. off in terms of where he went but experientially at the very least we can say that Jesus on the cross experiencing the wrath of God yes that was hell that's right that's right and and now that kind of leads on to the second one which is how does um how does jesus dying fully pay the penalty if he's not eternally punished yeah um again we've got to see the significance of, of what is going on there as god the father punishes wrath pours out wrath upon god the son there is a breach of of an eternal and perfect unity that is of such significance um, that it that it of an eternal relationship at that point that can therefore atone for uh, for an eternal punishment. Um, mm. in, in that, I mean, you think about it, it's, it's a, no illustration is ever perfect, but you think about what's going on in a nuclear reaction. You know, you've got sure. these tiny little atoms spinning around one another, and you you rend that the bond there, and and you can have a tiny little thing that that has cataclysmic consequences much mm. bigger than itself. Mm. Um, mm. That there is there is something. There's, there's an illustration there of what goes on when the, the relationship between the, the father and the son is rent by judgment. Yeah. Something very significant um, is brought about. Um, and, and so in the same way that my sin is never is not eternal in that I only sin for 80 years, you know, and then I die, mm. um, but I get more than 80 years punishment because the one that I've sinned against is eternal and the one that I've sinned against is, per- is perfect. That's why that it's an eternal punishment. It's that... Mm. That again. Oh, so you're saying that, sorry, just to understand, so you're saying, so when we sin against God, it's yes. not like we sin for 80 years, then we get 80 years punishment. That's right. Yeah. The punishment is... It, the punishment fits the crime that we've against whom we've done the crime. Yeah, um, right. In the same way that if you 
Um, you kill an ant, there's probably no punishment. This might, you've heard me do this one many times, but you kill an ant, there's probably no punishment for that. You kill a dog, well, there's a bit more for that. You yeah. kill a person, yeah. much higher. Uh, you, you kill a police officer, massive problems. Mm. Mm. You, you, you kill a, the, the prime minister or the queen. Yeah. You see, that the, yes. the, the significance of your penalty depends against... Uh, depends on the one against yes. whom you've committed it. And in those acts as well, the, the killing doesn't take 80 years, but you might get 80 yeah, years It takes prison. 30 seconds to pull yeah, the trigger. Right, right. right um, yes. and, but there's, an, there's a much longer penalty dished out because of the significance of the one against whom you committed the crime. Yeah. Now, you, you sin against the eternal holy God mm. and eternal punishment is due. Now, at that point, to flip the... Now we're talking about atonement... Um, no amount of good works or no amount of worldly sacrifice could ever make up that difference. Mm. Um, that's why Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. Mm. But you, you offer a sacrifice of Jesus Christ, that the perfect Lamb of God, the mm. Holy One, the one who was in perfect eternal relationship with God the Father himself, and you, you rend that apart with yeah. the wrath of God, now you can offer a sacrifice, a once-for-all sacrifice that can mm. cover all sin for all eternity and all time. Um, mm. it's, it's the significance of the sacrifice now that's been offered yes. to, that, that matches the significance of the wrongdoing that's yes. happened. So if I can try and just tie those things together. Sure. There. So even though Jesus wasn't eternally punished, the reason why this punishment is sufficient is one, because of just how ruptured and, and amazing that, that this father-son relationship being broken uh, yeah. was and second of all just the value of who jesus is himself yeah, that, that he right. was the one who died that's exactly right yeah okay. Well, yeah okay. there's a lot to take in there yeah this has been a this has been a tricky tricky episode of the extras but i'm, <laughs> I'm thankful for all these questions these are good things and i'm glad that people are, are thinking on this level this yes. is this is wonderful there you go and hopefully this is something that people will feel encouraged to continue wrestling with continue going back to god's word on and chatting to other people about Indeed. Well. Yeah. Now, Sam, uh, you're, uh, we're coming towards the end of this Romans series. We are, yeah. It's been a great joy, but this is the last Sunday in Romans okay. coming up. Why don't you run us through where we're going? Yeah, you want to get your head into Romans chapter 4 this coming uh, week and be ready for it on Sunday. We're looking at Abraham and we're asking the question, is the God of the Old Testament different to the God of the New? Some people have that view that, that used to be by rules, obey the rules and you get in and all of a sudden we switch it over and now it's by faith, by grace. Um, and actually Paul wants to push back on that and go, no, no, hang on, let's go back and see what Abraham actually discovered in this whole arena of justification. Was he justified by works and keeping the rules or was he also justified by faith? Mm-hmm. And uh, what, what Paul's going to show us is that it's always been by faith. God's grace has always come about through mm-hmm. that means. And uh, there is at one level... Um, a great consistency um, with God, uh, even though that the the promise that we're trusting in has changed. It's, it's no longer the old covenant made to Abraham; it's the new covenant in Christ. But it's the same means of faith. Okay, all right. Well, I'm looking forward to it. Mm. Uh, I guess you know. Thanks to everyone who's been listening. Uh, we'll uh, see you next week, maybe. Yeah, we'll see you at church on Sunday. All, all right, right, then. Bye-bye. Bye, bye. Bye.